It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only, call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 93 or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And welcome into the Virtual Bible Study. We're glad you're a part of it tonight. This is the Virtual Bible Study for Thursday, May 7th, 2009. My name is Jacob Gwynn. My father, Greg Gwynn, is in the studio with me tonight. Hello, Dad. Welcome Jake, to the program. Jacob, great to be here. We're looking forward to a good Bible study tonight, and I hope it'll be an interesting Bible study because it's based upon a lot of questions that different listeners and viewers have been sending us. So we're going to sort of do a smorgasbord or a potpourri of Bible subjects tonight, and we hope that uh, we'll be covering some things that will be of interest. Well, yes, we do look forward to that discussion, but we've got several questions that have been sent in, but... Plenty of time to take more. Yeah. So if you have a this question. is open forum night. Yeah. yeah. Hit us with a question. We, we we would rather not play stump the stump the panel, but uh, you know you know don't ask, don't ask us just obscure out of the way Bible questions just to see if you can stump us. But if you have a Bible question that's troubling you, we'd be glad to hear it. All right. Eight seven seven three eight one four five six seven questions at collegeview dot com are the ways you can join in on the discussion, or you can check out our chat room. Go to uh, ustream.tv as you see the instructions on your screen there, and you can join in on the chat room. We'll also remind you about another way you can keep track of the virtual Bible study, that is with Twitter, as we mentioned on the program last week. That's right. We're sending out our updates on Twitter. Are you still getting Twitter verse? Yeah. Yeah. I get tweets pretty often. Are you getting people to follow yes, the virtual Bible absolutely. study? absolutely. And you, what, what's the benefit to our listeners if they want to follow you on well, Twitter? Well, they get, they get updates on Thursday about what our topics are going to be. And then right before the program starts, we're trying to remember to send out a, a, a tweet to tell people to get to their computer and get logged in. So it's just a reminder system. All right. And that's uh, that's sort of what we do with our emails as well. And we, we haven't been pushing this last few weeks, but we try to remind our listeners pretty often that you can get on our email update list, and we send out an email on Thursday afternoon. This morning, actually, I did it this morning, did a little earlier today. But sometime on Thursday, we send out an update telling you what our topic is going to be and and asking for feedback. We start taking feedback all day Thursday to be used during the program. If you're not on that list and you would like to be on that list, send us an email to questions at collegeview.com and just put it in the subject line, add me to the list. We'll do that. Here are the questions, Jacob, that I sent out earlier. These are I, I got five questions that I've kind of been uh, holding in reserve uh, for a program like this because I don't know that any one of them could make a whole program. Maybe they all could, but we're going to try to cover all of these. Number one, is it ever right to tell a lie? Number two, how should we view swearing and euphemisms? Number three, how can I be sure I've done enough to please God and do his will? Number four, can a person be saved by confessing and praying the sinner's prayer? And number five, can a preacher also be an elder? Those are unrelated topics, but they're all important ones, Jacob, and I hope we get some input from our listeners tonight. We've already got some emails coming in. We want to hear from you as well. In fact, our friend Randy in Jackson, Missouri, said, you really think you can cover all those topics in one 
in one oh, show. Oh, it's a challenge. Yeah, he put a challenge before, so we're going to try to do that. Let's do the first. Let's just go to this first one, Jacob. Let me read the very simple question that we got from a listener named Rex, who said, "Is it is lying ever permissible?" For example, in Exodus, the Hebrew midwives lied to Pharaoh about the Israelite babies. Uh, I think I could multiply the examples of instances where Bible characters lied, and but the question from that, from that one episode and others that we might reference, is it ever right to lie? What's your thinking on that? How, how would you answer Rex's question? Could we justify lying at? at different times and for various reasons. All right. And you mentioned Randy in Jackson, Missouri. Randy says, is it ever right to lie? He says, in almost all situations, the answer is no. There are a couple of situations for which I have mixed emotions. One is whether it is okay for a policeman to lie to a criminal to obtain a confession from him. For example, is it okay for an investigator to say, your partner has already confessed that you committed the crime? The other example would be a military interrogator. Would it be okay for him to say your country has already surrendered or any other type of psychological warfare? Since most of us will never be in that situation, the general answer is no. Oh, one other problem. What if your wife asks, does this dress make me look fat? <laughs> uh, well, uh, I, I take I, I would agree with, with Randy's general answer. I, I have I have reservations, though, about the other, saying that, yeah, maybe maybe sometimes it would be okay. Um, I know I, I, one Bible verse is pretty clear on that is Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8. Revelation 21 verse 8 says, The fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And so I think lying is is completely and categorically condemned in the scriptures. Now, what might be necessary, Jacob, is to make sure that we're working off of an agreed definition of lying. And maybe maybe there's some way that the things that Randy has suggested in his email in, by, by some rule of logic would not fall within the category of what the Bible calls lying. I'm, I, I don't know that I can make it work that way, but maybe somebody could make it work that way. I'm not sure how you follow, follow you there. Well, he was saying like psychological warfare or something like that. I mean – if someone is trying to define that as being different from just lying, I don't know. I, I like I said, I, I can't make it work that way. But maybe somebody's trying to trying to figure out some way to do that that I haven't figured out. Well, okay. Go, go well, ahead. Go ahead. All right. Um, I, I'm not sure I follow exactly. I don't think Randy. I mean, Randy would admit that that's lying, but he would think it, it would be okay, perhaps. But he doesn't know for sure. And I, and I would I would say that uh, that would not well, be Well, let me read one other. I, I, I'm trying to find an email that came in earlier today. Hang on just a minute. I think I got it here. Uh, Jim in, uh, in uh, Kansas writes and says, we had a volatile confrontation by one of our members sometime back about the lying question. Of course, the Bible never directly condones lying, and he prepared a long, redundant piece showing all the passages condemning lying. The argument started when a lady planned a surprise birthday party for her husband and used a ruse to get him to the party. This brother concluded this was lying and left the congregation. Uh, he said it would be good to distinguish what is actually a lie by Bible standards. It appears to me from the study that a lie is an attempt to gain through deception rather than a gag pulled on an old friend. So uh, Jim is saying in his thinking there are some things that, are, that that wouldn't fall into the category of just an outright lie. Well, even in those circumstances, though, I think I've known people who have lied to pull off the gag. Yeah. 
Well, I know, I know I've known an instance of instances like that, and I, I'm not comfortable with it. But I'm, what I'm saying is maybe some people are, are, have a different working definition, maybe that they feel like they can, can justify from the Scriptures. All right. We have an email from Keith in Lynchburg, Tennessee, and he gives wordy today. Uh, he sends in a two-letter answer for this question, no, but to make it longer, he puts four exclamation points behind it. So thank you, Keith, for that. Keith is clear in his answer. All right. and, and Anthony in the chat room says that he has given a definition in the answer that he sent in. So let's go to, uh, to Anthony's email. And uh, he says, a sin is a sin no matter what, else, else all of God's laws are relative and we have no absolute moral standard. A couple questions to throw out there. What is the definition of lie? Does it simply mean an untrue statement, or is evil intent inherent in the word? Also, what if a gunman enters your worship assembly, your wife and kids escape to the closet to hide? You stay to help fend off the attacker. He holds you at gunpoint, wants to know if anyone else is in the building. You would say, yes, my wife and kids are hiding in the closet. (laughs) Or would you say that? This type of scenario, while relatively unlikely, has played out many times in this country over the past few years, even in Knoxville, Tennessee, where he references the gun um, and that went into the worship assembly there yeah. last year, I believe. He says, I'm not implying anything one way or the other with these questions. It would just be an interesting discussion. Now, again, I don't – I think you would be lying if you said, no, there aren't any – isn't anyone else in the, uh, in, the, in the building, if there was somebody else in the building. I don't see that Jesus or, or God makes any kind of distinction of motive with lying. Well, that's what I'm saying. I don't either. I don't. I guess I wasn't clear to you earlier. I'm saying some people may come up with such a distinction or an argument. I don't see it. I don't think that that I, I mean, can justify. Th- th- am I only lying if I want to do you harm with what who, I'm telling you? Or uh, yeah, who gets to set the rule? If if some lying's okay and others n- not, Revelation 21:8 says all liars have their part in lake that burns with lake uh, with fire. If it's not so, if it's not all lying, then who's establishing the rules as to what lies get by and which ones don't? I don't know that. I can't come up with it. I was thinking along this lines, Jacob, of the episode where Peter was watching the trial of Jesus from a distance, and they and they began to say, hey, wait a minute. What about him? In Matthew 26, Peter sat, verse 69, Peter sat without in the palace, and a damsel came to him saying, thou also was with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied before them all saying, I know not thou. I, I don't. I know not what thou sayest. Well, he lied, but it was a lie to protect his life. Okay. Yeah. Certainly. Would it be okay? Yeah. I don't think so. But I mean, if that is, if that's justification, and we could say, well, Peter was okay on that. You'd have to say he was. Yeah. But but the the fact of the matter is that Jesus had said to him uh, when he predicted his his fall, he said, you know. Um, when thou art converted, Luke 22, verse 32, strengthen thy brethren. In other words, Jesus said, you don't have to be converted from this fall you're about to take. You're going to have to repent and turn and come back. So Jesus said it would amount to a fall from which he would need to be converted. But if the argument is that it's okay to lie to save life, then Peter didn't really fall because he was justified in what he said. So I, I don't think that works. Okay. First John chapter 2, verse 4 says... Uh, he that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandment is a liar, and the truth is not in him. I think there is your biblical definition of what a lie is. Say it again. Read it again. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So a lie, by biblical definitions, is something that's not true. Okay. Pat says, and I, I, this, is, this is not, we, we've got several Pats who may email in, and I'm not sure where this Pat is from, Jacob, but he says in two words, two letters again, no, never. Is it right to lie? Uh, Jack in Hampshire, Tennessee says, 
Is it ever right to lie? No, although there are occurrences where Bible characters lied, and in some cases it appeared to be for a good cause. It's never right to lie. God did use people for good, but because they chose to lie doesn't mean that God approved of their sin. Example, Rahab the harlot in Joshua 2. She's mentioned in James 2. And the midwives are mentioned in Exodus 1, another reference to them. In the Old Testament, we read Exodus 20, verse 16, Thou shalt not bear false witness. In the New Testament, Ephesians 4, 25, Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. I think Jack's observation there is the right one. People lied. Those Old Testament characters lied. And God was able to use that to accomplish his purposes. But that doesn't mean that he that he justified or authorized the lying. Now, God, can use, God can use wrong deeds to accomplish his ultimate will. Uh, people will note Rahab the harlot as mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 as being someone of faith. And yet she lied. In the account that she's, I believe what she's commended for is her faith, not her lying, but her faith. If if she's committed for her lying, she could also be committed for her harlotry. Commended, right? commended, yeah. Commended for her harlotry, yeah. Uh, and you know there are other everyone that's mentioned in Hebrews chapter eleven committed sin, and uh, just because they're mentioned in Hebrews eleven, it does not a uh, condoning of the sin that they may have committed in their lives. That's right. So. Uh, looks like we're coming up on a break, Jay. We got one down. I, I, I'm going to take a position, and I think I think it's a general, pretty general consensus. Although some may hold out for some slight exception, I'm going to take the I'm going to take the position. You can't justify lying from the Bible anywhere, anytime, under any circumstance. I, right. I believe that's what the Bible teaches. If you disagree, let us know during the break. Eight seven seven three eight one four five six seven. Questions at collegeview.com. Don't go anywhere. The virtual Bible study continues right after these messages. Have you checked out all of the resources on collegeview.com lately? Check it out now while you listen to these important messages. The virtual Bible study will be right back after this. Hi, I'm Wade Shelton. In 1 Peter 3.15, the scripture says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You see, we believe here at College View that we should be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks And I believe that we are dedicated to this cause. That's why we here at College View bring you the virtual Bible study each week. Our hope is that you will join us each week here on the virtual Bible study in hopes of strengthening your faith so that you will be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. Please join us here every Thursday night on the virtual Bible study. I know that it's worth an hour of your time. Hi, I'm Jack Coleman, a member of the College View Church of Christ, with a suggestion for you and your family. Why not turn off the TV on Thursday nights and gather the family around the computer for an hour of in-depth Bible study? The virtual Bible study always involves subjects of importance and interest to serious Bible students. So, why not join this Internet Bible study group every Thursday night? Use your Internet connection for something good. Listen to the virtual Bible study every week. Now, back to the program. And welcome back to the virtual Bible study. 877-381-4567. Questions at College View. Dot com are the ways you join in on the discussion or join the chat room tonight by following the instructions on your screen. Dean is in the chat room tonight, and he says that he's following you on Twitter. Great. That's great. We got a lot. Of, we got people following us out there All on right. Twitter. We're waiting for your email, 877-381-4567, questions at collegeview.com. Join in on the discussion tonight. We've talked about lying tonight, and we're being honest about that. We've already talked about it, and we're done with it. Yeah, we're moving on. We're moving, moving on. on. Second right. question. Okay. We're doing various questions, sort of potpourri, smorgasbord, open forum. Tonight we're dealing with some questions that have come in the last few weeks from different viewers or listeners. 
And we got another question. This one came to me directly from a person to ask us to comment about swearing and euphemisms. And uh, this was in a private conversation we had, and 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 he was pointing out that it is just so common Absolutely. to hear to hear not only what we would refer to as the you know the really bad cuss words, but also words that are just coarse and vulgar that wouldn't pro- maybe fit in the the category of what we typically refer to as cuss words, but then also euphemisms. And he was commenting that some popular radio talk show hosts, even some oh, yeah. who profess to be religious use really bad language and he wanted us to comment about that all right what about euphemisms and uh, foul language 877-381-4567 questions at collegeview.com we'd appreciate it if you call but we hope you'll leave the euphemisms out what about euphemisms randy in jackson missouri says the answer to swearing using the name of god in vain is easy it's wrong swearing in general is okay in very limited situations such as oaths of office etc Normally, we should be known for being honest so that swearing is not necessary. Oh. I, I try to avoid all euphemisms that are based on the names of God or other religious figures. Maybe some of the euphemisms like gosh or gee have lost their religious connection for the most part, but I still think it's best to avoid them. I see what Randy's doing. He thought he thought I uh, actually was talk, asking two questions there. He's talking about swearing, taking uh, like a like – a, judicial oath or something in a courtroom that's not what i meant when i meant swear i meant using cuss words or coarse language we may deal with that swearing question at another time or maybe if we have time tonight but for the sake of this question i especially had in mind using coarse words bad words and he would say that it's always wrong he says it's wrong and And he he says you need to be careful about the euphemisms need to check what you're saying now he is true that euphemisms may not have a connection with everybody but they do have connections with some people, and so we need to avoid them because yeah. well, what, like what he, I say, he, he mentions the word gosh or gee as a, a, as a euphemism, and I, I think he's probably right. If you said that to most people in the general public, they would not identify that as being a substitute for a religious word to take the name of God or Jesus in vain. But people who are informed of it know that it is so, and you're, and you're going to come across people like that to whom it would be an offense – I, I agree with him. It's best to avoid these all the time. Yeah, you know, just because I don't mean something by what I say doesn't mean that I'm not conveying that message. Mm-hmm. You know, if I called you a, a goofball and you took offense to it, well, I, I didn't mean that. That's that's a term of endearment in my mind. But right. I, what I said had a meaning associated to it, and I don't want to convey that thought. Well, in, that's a good idea, Jacob. And I, that reminded me of Colossians 4, verse 6. Where Paul said, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to answer every man. In other words, he's saying, be careful about your words. Measure your words. Don't don't just talk off the top of your head, because if you do, you're almost certain to say something ultimately that will offend somebody and hurt your influence in the long run. Absolutely. All right. Thank you for that email, um, Randy. Let me read a Bible, another Bible passage before we get to some more emails. Um, Jesus said, uh, well, I thought I had the verse there. Um, well, come on. I was Go ahead. Read an email. All right. I didn't have the Bible. You can look while I read Keith's email from Lynchburg. He says we should never do this. Euphemisms lead to swearing. So thank you, Keith, for your comments. Here's tonight. the Bible verse I was thinking. Matthew 12, Jesus said, O generation of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things. 
and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say to you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. What Jesus said, you better watch what you say. You're going to be judged by those things. It matters matters. what you say. It's not just something that goes and you never have to give account for it. We have Pat who has sent an email. He says, swearing is wrong and so are using euphemisms. Sometimes people are not aware that the euphemism, what the euphemism really means. But once they have been told, they should do their best not to use them anymore. We are to be serve. We are to be God's people, and the words He we use tells everyone if we are one of God's servants. I like what I like what Pat says there. If you didn't know, but you found out, and that's what this is all about—people finding out what those euphemisms are connected—then you ought to quit doing it. In other words, if you if you could claim that you were innocently using a term and you didn't know its derivation, okay. But when you find out, you should. I remember years ago I was using an expression. It wasn't it wasn't a euphemism or anything, but it was an expression. That I'd heard a lot. I never thought about where it, what it came from. And a guy took me aside and said, do you know what that means? Do you know where that came from? And he explained it. It was, it was horrible. And I never used that expression again since then. I mean, I didn't know before, but once I knew, I wasn't going to use that expression anymore. I was in Florida, and uh, a woman down there was using a, a statement, a phrase that was um, – well, in Tennessee, it's not a nice phrase. And I said, you know, in Tennessee, that's not very nice. And she had no idea. And her husband said, in Florida, it's not very nice either. So that was the end of that. All right. Uh, um, Pat goes on. He says, sweet and bitter cannot come from the same place. And so we need to be careful about about what we say. Exactly right. Uh, let's see. We've got uh, Jack in Hampshire, Tennessee says, swearing is is obscene or degrading. And Paul in his letter to the Ephesians says in chapter 4, verse 29, let no corrupt speech proceed out of your mouth, but such as is good for edifying as the need may be, that it may give grace to them that hear. So he says frequently Christians will use what is called a euphemism or a substitution of an agreeable or uh, inoffensive expression for one that may offend or suggest something unpleasant. When we use words which are simply a substitute, are we not just leaving in the minds of the hearer the actual offensive word? Yes, that is exactly what we're doing. Swearing and the use of euphemisms are not edifying, nor do they give grace to them that hear. Lastly, I'd like to share with you a quote I have taped to my monitor. Profanity is the effort of a weak mind to express itself forcefully. I believe it to be so true, and I've had a few comments about it. It's a very good attention grabber. All right, Jack, I agree with you. Thanks for that comment. I do think that you know people get pretty lazy in in their speech patterns and and the way they talk and the things they say they get they don't think and the, and they just sort of ramble off the top of their head and i think these passages that have already been referenced suggest we need to be more careful in that we need to measure our words all right thank you for that comment jack and finally anthony in columbia tennessee says i believe it is sinful to use profanity i would look forward to hearing other spiritual uh, scriptural arguments some passages that come to mind are James chapter 5, verse 12, and Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. I believe these pretty well cover it. Folks may say the Bible doesn't say not to cuss, but I don't. But it doesn't have to. Profanity and obscene speech is defined by society. The four-letter words that we know in this day and age are nothing more than sounds, but we as a society have decided that they are offensive. The new obscenities get created all the time, new profane phrases and slang words. The Bible cannot list all of these, obviously. Therefore, Christians should not use any speech that is considered offensive in his or her culture. 
As for euphemisms, I believe that this simply is a judgment call. There are many euphemisms, some that are more obvious than others. One man cannot bind his view of which euphemisms are acceptable and which aren't. Some euphemisms mask the actual profanity more than others, so some have different opinions. For example, one person may say that gosh is okay, another would not say gosh but would say golly, and while another uh, might even think that oh my goodness is unacceptable. One simply has to make his own decisions. I think in general, most euphemisms should not be employed by Christians for the same reasons out-and-out profanity should not be. Everyone, though, this depends on the euphemism, knows what you're really saying. Well, I think I think Anthony's right. I think some euphemisms are closer to the original word that they were intended to substitute for. Uh, but I, I, I like what he was saying there also that in general— Let's just avoid them. You know, if if there's any, what's the reason for trying needing to say them? Well, they are typically expressions we use when we're surprised or disappointed or something of that nature. We'd be better off not to talk then, anyway. Might be better to say nothing. And if if it's questionable at all, that's an easy thing to just stay away from. It's certainly questionable in a lot of people's minds. It's questionable in my mind. I uh, I acknowledge that, and I think, you know, that. We can just use good caution in that. We, you know, it just should be something that Christians don't do, and and we don't even have to. to you know, I, I certainly wouldn't want to be a person, Jacob, who who said, "Hey, listen, I'm going to defend the right of people to use euphemisms." That's that's where I'm going to that's no, take my stand. No, and Anthony's not either. No, 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 he's not. He's saying he's saying we do use some judgments as what we say, and 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 we oh, all I agree know, with I, that. I, I agree with Anthony's statements yeah, completely. Yeah. I'm just saying, I've known some people who got pretty adamant about you can't condemn euphemisms and and I, i'm just saying that would not want to be i would not want to take my stand there i'm that's not where i'm going to drive my stake and say i'll stand in defense of using euphemism i'm just not going to do it i'm going to say why not just avoid if them? someone could take this the wrong way i'm not going to say it right and because i want to be presenting myself in the correct fashion all the time Thank you for your comments, Anthony, tonight. Jacob, let's take our our mid-show break. We're a little bit early, but we're running. We're going to get behind. We've only done two out of five, and we're almost halfway through the program. So we're, we're running a little behind schedule. Let's grab the middle break, and then we'll come back with the next one. All question. right. Jump in now while we listen to this week's bullet point. After these important messages, we'll be back to take your comments. Email them during this break. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's bullet point. Lying is epidemic in our society. In the book, The Day America Told the Truth, authors Peter Kim and James Patterson report that as many as 90% of all Americans lie regularly. We frequently hear allegations of lying at the highest levels of our government. How does God regard all of this lying? Quote, there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven, which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that run rapidly to evil. A false witness who utters lies. And one who spreads strife among brothers. That's Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19. Another quote, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. But they that deal truly are his delight. Proverbs 12, verse 22. And God has plainly told us the result of all such lying. Quote, a false witness shall not be unpunished, and he that speaketh lies shall not escape. Proverbs 19, verse 5. But someone objects, my lies are not so serious as those told by high government officials. Mine are not so bad as those of others who are reported in the news and so forth. Theirs are big and black, while mine are little and white. Sorry, that's not how God sees it. Notice Revelation 21, verse 8 says, But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. 
We must be committed to telling the truth at all times and in all circumstances. Ephesians 4.28 says, Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Colossians 3 verse 9 says, Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. If the previously mentioned report is anywhere close to accurate, remember it said that 90% of Americans lie regularly, it means you can scarcely trust anyone. Can others trust you? Think about it. That's this week's bullet point. My name is Cole, and I'm eight years old. My name is Thomas, and I'm seven years old. And our families love to listen to the virtual Bible study. We're waiting to hear from you. Call in right now and join in on the virtual Bible study. Now, back to the program. And welcome back to the virtual Bible study tonight. Thank you for being a part of it. We're taking questions from our listeners tonight as our sole subject matter. So we want to hear from you. We have three more questions out there for your consideration, but we'll take your question on any Bible subject. So jump in now. It's your time. The line is open at 877-381-4567. You can put us on the spot. We, you, you won't give us any warning. Call in now and drop your question on us, and let's see. Let's see if we can get anybody that's listening to give you an answer. Or okay. you can send us an email, questions at college. People may be having, we're not getting emails coming in, and maybe because we're going so fast people can't keep ahead of us, Jacob. So here, let me read these last three questions, get something in here to us right away. The next one we're going to talk about is, how can I be sure I've done enough to please God and do his will? Then we're going to talk about, can a person be saved by confessing and praying the sinner's prayer? And the final question, can a preacher also be an elder? They're not related, but they're all interesting questions. Let me read how this third question, can I be sure I've done enough to please God and do as well? Let me read the the email that suggested this question. This is from our friend Mike up in Orleans, Indiana, who said, I recently spoke about Hebrews 11 in a Bible study, and one of the members asked me a good question. I admit it was a bit tough to answer definitively. I thought you might consider it for the virtual Bible study. Hebrews 11 is a chapter that shows us clearly that those who have faith will also have works. James 2 helps us to see that as well. The woman remarked, this member that he was talking to, remarked that although we are not saved by works, they are necessary. When do we know we have done enough works to know that we're pleasing to God? She felt that although she often did things, she could always do more and often felt inadequate. And he said, I'm not sure this question could be clearly defined, but thought the idea, the ideas people come up with might be interesting. All right. We will know that when we die and until we die, we will never have done enough. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us about that. Hebrews, and maybe you have a different answer, Dad. Go ahead. But Hebrews chapter 4 tells us about working while we're here. He said in Hebrews chapter 4, beginning verse 9, There remaineth therefore a rest for the people of God, for he that has entered into this, his rest, he has also ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. That we have to be working as what long as we're alive, we need to be diligent in serving God and serving to the best of our ability. Paul had this attitude that he was going to work until the point he died because in Philippians chapter 4, beginning of verse 13, he says, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth in those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So Paul was not there yet. Yeah. He was working to be what God would have him to be. I think what we got to be careful about when we're dealing with this question is is the any any inkling of an idea Jacob that we could do enough and say okay I've hit the mark now God will have to let me come to heaven because I've earned it I've made it I've I've 
I merit salvation. I've earned it. That's stepping all over God's grace. Uh, it'll never happen. And, and in Ephesians chapter 2, a passage that I think is often misused by the faith-only people, that's actually what Paul was talking about in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. He says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. In other words, there's no works whereby you could boast and say, I've done enough. I've done all I could. God's going to have to let me into heaven now because of all that I've done for him. Nobody will ever be able to say that. I, I honestly believe if you if you ask anyone, you know, could you do more? The answer would have to be, yeah, I could do more. I don't care how much I'm doing. I could always do more than I'm doing. And so there's never – now, I think what the – what the question really is based upon, Jacob, is, is can I be confident of salvation? Can I have a confidence in my salvation? Can I have hope and confidence in the promises of God? And I believe, yes, we can have hope and confidence in the promises of God through his grace and mercy and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. There is a promise of salvation for those who serve God. And we can have confidence in that, but it can never be a confidence based upon that I've done enough. Those those two things can't go together. I don't know if I'm being clear about that. Yeah, and it's a and it's a, it's a, it's a those things are held in tension, yeah. uh, and 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 yeah, it's really it gets into a place where it's hard to define it, that exactly. Yeah. Um, so I, I, have, I think and and perhaps that's in the wisdom of God that it can't be is you can't put your finger on that that you can't really, you know, come away and say, oh yeah, I'm there now because that would that would lead to complacency. There are some who have tried to take a stand. On one end or the other, those who say that it doesn't matter how you live, you can live any way you want, and God's going to save you. We've talked about the once saved, always saved doctrine. That's false. And there are others like the Catholic Church where you can you can do your penance and you can pray your rosaries and, and, and do certain things that earn the right uh, to be in a right relationship with God. Those those two extremes are wrong. The truth's in the middle there, and, and, uh, and we've got to be finding that I, I truth. I think that's right. Let's see what some of our emailers have said, Jay, all right, uh, Randy in Jackson, Missouri says uh, no answer this time. Yeah, I think uh, he, takes, I think, he takes his his pass on that one. Well, I think probably because he agrees, it's a tough question to answer. It's not an easy question, okay. for sure. Uh, Pat yeah. says, uh, "How can I be sure by by studying the Bible and seeing the examples of Peter, Paul, and other apostles, disciples, and Christians? The Old Testament has some great men and women showing their desire to do what was pleasing to God. They were human, just as we are, and so we can re- uh, we can relate to the mistakes they made." Christ is the perfect example, even though he was human, he was without sin. I do think that what Pat's saying there is we've got some Bible examples of great heroes of the faith. We see their human weakness. They, no one was perfect except Jesus. But we still see people like Moses, Elijah, even King David. And I, we've just in our daily Bible readings been reading in the life of King David. David had a lot of flaws, but he was still called a man after God's own heart. None of those people who were faithful ever said well, I'm human. I'm I'm just that's just the way I am. That's right. God's going to have to accept that. I've done all I can do. No, nobody ever said that. Right. Okay. Good. All right. Keith in Lynchburg says, trust in God's promises, repent of sins, teach others, pray without ceasing. All right. So live by faith. There you go. I think that's right. Jack says, how can I be sure I've done enough? He says, we can never do enough to merit anything from God. Even if we could, we'd still be unworthy as we read in Luke. 1710, this is a great verse. I'm glad Jack brought it up. He says, so likewise, ye, when ye have done all those things which are commanded, you say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. So that's a really important verse, uh, Luke 1710. And he, Jack goes on. He says, 
But we can please God by doing his will every day in our lives. We will make mistakes in the process, but if we go to him in prayer with a sincere heart, repenting of our sins, he will forgive us as Simon was forgiven when he sinned in Acts 8.22, which says, Repent therefore of this thy wickedness and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart shall be forgiven thee. So I I think Jack's exactly right. Don't ever get the idea you can merit it. Keep striving uh, and keep seeking the will of God and, and repent when you fail. All right. 877-381-4567. 877-381-4567. Questions at collegeu.com. Surely you have an opinion about this. If you have not joined in, why not give us a call and let's talk. We're looking forward uh, I'm to getting, I've got an email that came in from Art in Cullioca, Tennessee, who says he, he just gives us the verse, Luke 17:10, which we just read. I think okay. uh, Arthur brings that same verse out. Uh, and then uh, I'm not sure. Oh, okay. We've got another question. This is a different, this off. This is a different question from, from uh, Vernon. We'll get to that. All right, uh, Anthony in Columbia. Finally, the last one on this question. He says, "Well, assuming you're already a New Testament Christian, as long as you are not knowingly committing sin, from James chapter four verse seven, he that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin, and are doing all you can to obey all of God's commands. When and you repent when you fall short, then you're covered by First John chapter one verse seven." Would be encouraged to hear other responses to this big question. All right. Uh, he references 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 there, Dad. Oh, go ahead, Jake. I was looking at something else. All right. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with the other, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Again, um, I don't think Anthony's necessarily talking about that, but there'd be some people who would point to 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 and says, would say you, it doesn't matter if you sin. Uh, God doesn't care about that as long as you're... Well, a few years ago, there was quite a controversy on that passage, Jacob, and some were, some were suggesting the, way, uh, the idea that there was an automatic or a continuous cleansing taught in that passage. You know, that as long as you were generally trying to live right, the, the blood of Christ would automatically uh, take your sins away. And some people even uh, described it as like a windshield wiper. It just wiped the sins away. Just if you happen to get a sin on you, it just wiped it away automatically. But the passage doesn't teach anything about automatic cleansing. It says, uh, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I think that's so, what Anthony is saying here. Yeah, I'm not saying Anthony's no, saying no. that position. Uh, no, I'm I saying just that. want to point that out. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, he says if uh, if you repent when you fall short, then, then you're going to be covered by 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. The blood of Christ is going to uh, cleanse us of all sins. So appreciate, uh, Anthony, for those comments. Okay, now let's get this next question. The next question, can a person be saved by confessing and praying the sinner's prayer? I want to jump on this before the break, Jacob. Uh, here's the email that prompted this to be part of our discussion tonight. Um, the, this listener asked, I've been studying with someone and they believe that they are saved. This is based on the events leading up to her salvation. She claims that she went up during the altar call and said the sinner's prayer followed by confessing her sins. She pointed out Romans 10 verse 7, which makes reference to confessing your sins and you should be saved. I just want some clarity on this verse and if there's any connection to confessing when a Christian has committed sin. Well, I actually think that Romans 10 verse 7 there, that's not talking about confessing sin at all. Probably the verse that they mean in Romans 10 is Romans 10 verse 9, which says, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Romans 10, 9 and 10, the, the confession of that verse is not a confession of sins. It's a confessing our faith in Jesus as the Son of God, a necessary prerequisite to salvation. 
We certainly believe that verbally confessing Jesus as our Savior is a, that, that he is the Son of God is a prerequisite to salvation. It's not the only one, but it's one of them. Uh, and so we got to, uh, Romans 10, 9, 10 says you got to believe and you got to confess. In addition to that, a passage like Acts 2.38 would say you've got to repent and be baptized. Peter said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So putting it all together, a person must believe, repent of their sins, confess their faith in Jesus, and be baptized. That's what you must do in order to be saved. There's no place in the Bible that says you're saved by praying a sinner's prayer. Uh, I would point out Acts chapter 9 in the case of of Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul. When he saw the Lord on the road to Damascus, he was struck blind. He was led into the city. And uh, while he was in the city for three days, he was fasting and praying. The Lord appeared to a man named Ananias. Acts 9, verse 11 said, Arise, go to the street which is called Straight, and inquire the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth. So we know he had been, he believed in, he saw the Lord, he believed on him, he called him Lord on the road. He went into the city, he was praying and fasting for three days. But when Ananias came to him, Acts 22, verse 16 says, And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So here's a man who believed, who was fasting and praying, and yet he still was in his sins and had to be baptized in order to have his sins forgiven. Okay, I think that is an excellent example there, Dad. We'd never find anyone who is told, say a prayer and you'll be saved. And we look at every example where we can find it, and no example anywhere does someone who is a sinner, are they told to pray for their salvation. When they, when they were asked directly in Acts chapter 2, what shall we do? They're not told, well, just say a prayer. and it'll be. But that's what people say on television today. That's what we hear, and that's what preachers are preaching uh, around the world, that sinner's prayer, Dad, is interesting. I think it uh, came into popularity around in, in the 1940s, I think, uh, on the televangelist or, well, the precursor to the televangelist circuit uh, that the, the sinner's prayer was developed. Uh, nowhere can we find it in the Scriptures. All right. Before we get to the break, let's read our emailers' responses on this. Uh, Randy says, I prefer to avoid non-biblical terms such as sinner's prayer. He's right. It's not in the Bible. He says, if a person has sincerely confessed Jesus as Lord and repented of their sins, then he is saved. His first act of obedience should be to be baptized. I would disagree with Randy on that. I believe that salvation doesn't come until he has been baptized. Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins, Acts 2 to 38. If repentance is necessary for salvation, then baptism is also necessary for salvation because they're linked with the conjunction and. Repent. It doesn't say repent and you're saved and then be baptized. It says repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. So uh, they're, it, both, they're it, both as equally uh, important to the remission exactly of sins. Right. So Randy, Randy agrees that you've got to repent in order to be saved. But if you have to repent, then you also have to be baptized based upon Acts 2.38. Thank you, Randy. Okay. Um, Keith in Lynchburg says, No, if contact is not made with water, submersion, then salvation is not complete. No one can pray their way into heaven. No example was ever given of anyone doing so. John chapter 9, verse 31 the blind man was not inspired when he said what he said in this verse. And Jesus never rebuked him when he sought him out. Okay. 9.31, I think, is uh, God hears not the sinner's prayer. Or the, 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 the prayers of a sinner, yeah. Of a sinner, yeah. Uh, uh, um, Pat says, uh, can a person be saved by confessing and praying the sinner's prayers? No. That's not the example that Christ set for us. Well, that's not the there, – there's no – I think if I was going to clarify that statement, there's no example of that in the New Testament. There's not a – there are thousands of people who became saved beings 
recorded in the book of Acts. Thousands, not just few, not just a few dozen or a few hundred, but thousands of people became Christians, and their and their accounts are recorded in the book of Acts. And not one of them was saved by praying a sinner's prayer. It's just not in the Bible. And every example in the book of Acts where details are given of how a person became a Christian, where they're where it's specified how they became a Christian, baptism is included in those in in those accounts. Jack in Hampshire, Tennessee says, no. My question would be, where do you read? In other words, can you be saved by confessing and praying the sinner's prayer? No. My question would be, where do you read of this in the Bible? I see no example in the Bible of any sinner's prayer being stated by anyone, which resulted in them being added to the church or saved from their sins. And Anthony says, no, as long as no, as I know, many other responders will say the Bible clearly teaches that faith alone does not save a person. And there is no such thing as a sinner's prayer anywhere in the Bible. We're up against right. the break. We've got one question left. We're, we're going to get there. I think we're going to meet Randy's challenge of trying to cover all five could, of these. We've got another question. So we, yeah. could, we could stretch it to six yeah. or seven <laughs> or eight. You can give us a challenge. Let's hear from you during the break. Don't go anywhere. The Virtual Bible Study is back right after this. These guys are doing all of the talking. We need to hear from you. Call in now. The Virtual Bible Study continues right after this. Do you remember a time when no one had ever heard of a church with a family life center or a gymnasium? Can you think back to a time when good brethren would have been outraged to see a church budget overloaded with kitchen equipment and supplies, athletic equipment, and buses to carry kids to amusement parks? Are you concerned because the church you're attending has gotten all wrapped up in things that you know should not even be a part of the work of the church? Would you like to find a congregation that is committed to simply doing Bible things in Bible ways? If so, please visit the College U Church of Christ. Come see for yourself. I am Nestor Sanchez from Arica, Chile, in South America, and I love to listen to the virtual Bible study. And this moment, I invite you to participate in this program, too. Gracias. Broadcasting around the world with truths that are out of this world. The Virtual Bible Study. Take it away, guys. And welcome back to the Virtual Bible Study tonight. We're glad you're a part of the program. Our camera's sort of leaning there. I think it should have had a V8 this morning. There it goes. It's getting straight. <laughs> but uh, we got some chatter in the chat room. Uh, I'll mention some of the highlights. Uh, Dean says we should always err on the side of caution. I believe that this was sent around the time we were talking about lying. Uh, we always and want possibly euphemism. Uh, he says we tend to want to come up with circumstances that would justify us violating the clear commandments of God. And that's true. Uh, he says, where does the substitute word come from? Talking about euphemisms, it comes from the heart. If I say the actual word or substitute my word for it, my heart is not right. Um, and um, there's some other chatter. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 80 says one verse that would u- be used to say that we should not use profanity. Um, Anthony liked your bullet point. He says, I would want to delve deeper into the biblical definition of lying. I don't have the answer, but I wonder if evil intent or serial offense is implied. And then Anthony to the question of how do we know if we've done enough? He says, I don't think it's that tough of a question. We can't live our lives in constant fear of not making it to heaven. That's not what we are taught in the Bible. I agree with that. I think, uh, I think the Lord intends for us to have confidence in our salvation, but the confidence is not in having done enough or, you know, because as, as we were saying, Jacob, that would breed complacency in us. If we thought, oh, yeah, I've done enough. Now I can kind of sit back and rest. We need to keep striving. Keep uh, If we love the Lord and and pleasing him and bringing glory to his name is our primary objective in our life, then we're not going to sit back and say, I'm, on, I'm trying to find a level where I can say I've done enough. You know, that, that the, almost, the question, I guess, is almost what's the problem? You know, could I draw a line and say I got I got to that line? 
we're not looking for a line. We're looking to do as much as we can and more because our 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 goal is to glorify God. And so if that's our goal, then we're never going to be wanting to say, I've done enough. I, I'm, I'm looking for a place where I can say I've hit the mark. No, we're just going to keep going. And to some extent, I'm not arguing the point, but to some extent, we do have to have fear. We've got to fear God. We've got to fear being on his bad side. First Peter chapter 1, verse 17 says, And if you call on the Father who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. So we... And this is another one of those things where you're, 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 you got two extremes, but we've got to be fearful of being on the wrong side when that day yeah, comes. Yeah. There needs, as you used the word tension earlier, Jacob, I think there needs to be a degree of tension. We we want to we want to feel a tension to keep striving, not yeah. not to lay back or, or rest. Okay. All right. To the last question: Can a preacher also be an elder? I had a long email, and I'm not going to take time to read all this, but this came from Lewis. One of our listeners who said, uh, in fact, he and I had had a, an exchange, and I offered First Peter chapter five, first few verses of First Peter chapter five, where Peter said that he also was an elder and was addressing elders, and I used that as justification of the fact that Peter, who was a preacher, was also an elder. In fact, let, let me read that because that that's, I guess, where I'm going to hang my hat for answering this question. In in First Peter five verse one, the elders which are among you, I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also partaker of the glory that shall be revealed, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre's sake, but of a ready mind. Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. Now, this uh, Lewis said, I have read this verse before in my study. I'm having a hard time understanding. That verse as a verse for scriptural reasons, so a preacher, so a preacher cannot be an elder, or a preacher can be an elder. I'm not sure. I don't think he said what he meant there. I cannot disprove this idea that the elder can be uh, that the preacher can be an elder, but I can't prove it either, because of the interpretation of this verse is different. Now, I still have questions and concerns how this verse sets the example that a preacher can be an elder of the same church. Uh, he says, I've always understood this verse as Peter saying that I have been an elder of a church. I know your hardship. I understand your worries. Um, anyway, he, he has several thoughts about that. But uh, I, I, to me, it seems pretty clear. Peter was certainly an evangelist, a preacher of the gospel. But he said he, he was, present tense, an elder. Now, he was an elder of, the, of one congregation because the oversight of the elders is limited to the flock which is among you, verse 2. So he wasn't an elder in some broad general sense. He was an elder of a local congregation. He was an elder of a specific local flock. That's the limitations that he himself described there as being on elders. And so I, I believe that the verse is the answer. That verse is the answer to the question. Uh, what about First Timothy chapter 5, verse 17? Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. Is that an allusion to the fact that they are preaching I think as well. so. I think okay. so. Laboring in the word would suggest the idea of preaching or proclaiming the message. And so okay. it talks of elders and some who were laboring in the word. So that would be another good verse, Jacob. Um, Randy says, can an elder preacher be an elder? He says, yes, the office or position of preacher is not really mentioned in the New Testament, at least not prominently. I think it's best when one or more of the elders are the preachers in the local church. A better question might be, does the preacher have to be an elder? The preacher should have all the characteristics all the character traits of an elder as specified in the scripture. It may be that he wouldn't be an elder if he is very new to this church, 
But I think it would be best if he's appointed as an elder soon. Another good question might be, does the preacher, if he's an elder, have more authority than the other elders? The answer to that would be no. But sadly, that's not the case in many churches. Exactly right. Good observation, Randy. Uh, Some churches are operating on an unscriptural pastor system that's just not in the Bible. A one-man pastor show. Yeah. All right. Keith keeps up his lengthy exercise. description here he says yes and uh, to that and that certainly is a valid answer thank you keith we agree with that pat says uh, yes he can be a preacher can be an elder if he's qualified just because he's a preacher does not make him qualified i've been some places that seem to think the preacher was an elder without ever being appointed that's wrong certainly yeah but but uh, you know if you had a preacher he wouldn't necessarily have all the qualifications in other words he might not be a married man with believing children so, I mean, he would have to meet all the qualifications. I think that's a good observation. All right. And Jack uh, references 1 Timothy 5.17, again, that we uh, just noted uh, that the, the elders should be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in word and in teaching. And, then, and Anthony says, I'm not familiar with any New Testament teaching that would preclude an evangelist from being an elder or vice versa. I personally know of men who are preachers and elders. That, Not that that makes it right in and of itself. Obviously, looking forward to the discussion. I guess those two passages... First, First Timothy five seventeen, First Peter five verses one through three. I, I, to me, that answers the question. I I don't know now. I, what I did, Jacob, today, uh, I I put out a poll question. We did that a few times before. Uh, let me see if I can get to it here and see what our latest update is. Uh, I put out the question: Do you believe that it's scriptural for a preacher to be an elder? And I put this out late today, and I got 28, 29 responses, every one of them yes. Every person said, yes, a preacher can be an elder. It's, it's scriptural. So that, well, this, isn't, this isn't defining tr- or determining truth. But, but, it, but everybody who responded said they believed, and, and based upon the scriptures. I asked, do you believe it's scriptural for the okay. preacher to be an elder? And everybody said they believed it was scriptural. Now, the follow-up question to that that I asked was, do you think it's advisable? If you said yes, that a preacher can be an elder, do you think it's advisable for a preacher to be an elder? Now, here we had almost a, a, a complete split. Had 10 who said yes, had 8 who said no, not advisable, and had 8 that said they were undecided on that question. So almost an even split. People were not as convinced that it was an advisable situation for the preacher to be an elder. What do you think of that? Well, you know, there's some there's some discussion about uh, well, the the preacher could use his position and you know he well would, he'll vote himself a raise. Everybody a raise. knows that okay. he'll he'll immediately vote himself a raise if he's an elder. But I'm, my, I'm joking about that. Obviously. Uh, well, okay, okay. <laughs> well, my 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 thought on it is if the man is qualified to be an elder, he won't be the kind of person who will take advantage of the position like that. i think that's a true observation too uh so i you know brethren have some concerns that if you get into that situation somehow or another the preacher will abuse it but as you said if he's if he's qualified based upon the characteristics that an elder's supposed he's to he's not going to be uh, he wouldn't be the type lucre, so. and he wouldn't be the type who yeah. would abuse the situation uh, dean uh says hopefully a preacher has studied most of his life wouldn't we want such a man as an elder so he says if he's qualified and, and he's certainly with his knowledge of the scripture, that would be an asset to him. Wouldn't we want that kind of man as an elder? The only downside that I see to it is that as a preacher, in other words, he's taking a preacher who assumes the responsibility of being an elder is taking on additional responsibilities. 
it may diminish his ability to do the preaching work that he was doing before. And not to say that, that the elder's work is less important. I think the elder work is most important. But, you know, I think that's a, a judgment call that every in every situation where you have to make it. You, you know, uh, a preacher who can devote his full time to the preaching or an elder who can devote the full time to the eldering. But he, if he holds both positions, then he, he's got double duty and it may make it harder to do each one as effectively. So I mean, that's but that's a judgment. That's not Bible. That's judgment. All right. Well, um, I got a follow up question to that. Uh, and it has to do with the qualifications of elders. This is our sixth question, by the way, and we just got a minute. Yeah, if we want to uh, get credit for this now, we're getting six questions in in 60 minutes. Titus chapter, that may be, that may indicate we've just given shallow yeah, answers. Right. Yeah, they're not, uh, worth the, they're not worth the time we gave them. Huh? Titus chapter 1, verse 6, in the qualification for elders, uh, it says, if any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly. And Vernon asked the question, does faithful children mean Christians? Well, the parallel to that in 1 Timothy chapter 3 uh, is uh, he used to be, uh, this is 1 Timothy 3 verse 2, a bishop must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, good uh, behavior, given hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous. One that ruled his own house well, having his children in subjection with all gravity. Now, some have said, see, Timothy doesn't say believing children. He says he just got to have his children in subjection. And some people have taken the position that faithful children just means that they're faithful to their father. They're, they're obedient, in other words, to their own physical father. I don't agree with that view. And I think a, a simple word study of the expression faithful in the New Testament would point out that that's an expression that is used to denote those who are faithful to the Lord. And so if they are faithful children, that means they're faithful to the Lord, which would indicate their obedience as Christians. So I take the view that First Timothy chapter 1, verse 6 is saying that an elder should have children who are Christians. That's my answer. Okay. Eight seven seven three eight one four five six seven or questions at collegeu.com. If you want to comment week. next week <laughs> or you want to comment off the air, those are the ways you do so. You know, Dad, as we mentioned, we're taking questions from our listeners tonight, or we took questions from our listeners, and that uh, opens up the, the the discussion and clears off the list. We've for cleared your out questions. some things that have been hanging here for a few weeks that we've been taking and holding in. So reserve. now we're ready for yours. We're ready for yours. Send in questions. We may do a whole program on one, or we may save them up and do several at a time like we did tonight. But either way, we want your questions. All right. We look forward to hearing your questions. We look forward to your participation in the upcoming editions of the Virtual Bible Study. Thank you for your discussion tonight, Dad. We could be wrong on some of the answers we gave. Uh, and if you think that we are, we'd like to hear from you. We'd like to... Uh, Study with you so we can both come to a better understanding. I got of one more. I got one more response on that on that poll, Jacob. Yes, it's scriptural for a preacher to be elder, but no, it's not advisable. There's another no, not advisable. Okay. Well, we appreciate uh, the discussion tonight, Dad. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Jacob. And thank you for being a part of the program. We look forward to you being back here next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And in the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study His inspired Word, the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. 
Thanks for listening to the virtual Bible study brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 930 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.